welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode 32. Dr. Charles Flores, Ph.D., Breaking the Chains of Addiction and Following Your Soul. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, We have a really special show today, and uh, Dr. Bob couldn't be with us because he's a bit ill, so let's send him our our prayers and and good energy. Uh, But we are here today with Dr. Charles Flores. And before we we have a a bio that we're going to read to kind of give you an idea who this guy is, but let me tell you who this guy is to me. Uh, We've known each other... uh, Gosh, for about 10 years, Charles, and right when I was beginning to think about, you know, integral and recovery, you were right there pioneering and thinking the same thoughts, and you have continued. We visited you recently at a a treatment center that you run in Oakland, and uh, anyway, I just think you're one of the coolest people ever. You're just so damn smart, and you've got such a good heart, and, you know, if there's there's a model for integral health in a human being and in a man it's a big brain completely united with a big heart and i think you to me you've always been an example of that and you're just a real inspiration and when i was in your clinic i was just feeling my heart's moved because when i go in treatment centers I, i just almost cry anyway just to see people struggling and trying to get their their lives back but the fact that you were there for them i just found extremely inspiring and moving and i'm just so so happy to have you here Oh, thank you. Charles Flores, he's uh, the Director of Recovery and Wellness Services at uh, La Familia Counseling. Um, he supervises and trains in the outpatient, inpatient, adolescent, and transition to treatment substance use disorder programs. Um, for over 20 years, Charles has assisted people with a variety of addictions, from the exogenous abuse of drugs and alcohol to uh, the ones that stem from chemicals already inside the brain, such as sex and love addiction, abandonment patterns, sexual compulsions, gambling, internet, and workaholism. Unlike most certified SUD professionals, he is also a psychotherapist who treats the anxiety, depression, and other psychological issues that often manifest after being covered up by drugs and our other addictive behaviors. Charles is originally from South Bronx, And he has worked with a wide range of people, um, from teens to elders and traditional and alternative sexualities, ethnic backgrounds. And he says, and I love this, that he works with everyone from jail to Yale. So, Charles, we're honored to have you here with us today and uh, really look forward to the conversation. Yeah. Charles, let me just start. Just give us a little of your background and history and how you got on this path. I I think it's always fascinating. And how did you, you know, from from the Bronx to the Bay Area, to a doctor, to a psychotherapist, to a, you know, kind of leader in the field here? Yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks so much, first of all, for coming on, you know, allowing me to speak for Integral Recovery Institute. Um, You know, it's this work that you've been doing there. It's very close to my heart. And um, you know, it represents another kind of approach toward uh, what we call recovery. Um, so I, anyway, we'll get into that. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm really excited of the potentials that come that stem from that. Uh, and it's very timely because we have such a it's in the news, you know, such a chronic uh, exacerbation, which flares up uh, on occasion. And, you know, we've heard a lot about the opioid epidemic. 
Yeah. Um, so, um, so that's something that, uh, you know, whatever tools we can use and offer, uh, to remedy some of that, um, that would be enormous. I think it's just an enormous contribution. So, um, asking a little bit like, how did I get here? Um, so yes, I was born and raised in the South Bronx, a Puerto Rican, um, you know, my family came from Puerto Rico. Um, and, uh, I was raised in the, you know, the seventies and eighties in New York. So at that particular period of time, there was, uh, you know, as they say, the fires were burning in South Bronx. There were literally, you know, we were just heading into the crack epidemic, uh, crime. Um, a lot of people moved out of the Bronx and then other people moved in. So the, uh, social cultural complexion of the area changed very rapidly and practically overnight. And, uh, you know, people might have, might know of in the seventies, the blackout of 1977 where, you know, the lights went out and I makes me think of what's going on now. And, uh, with these hurricanes and such when power is out and then there was looting happening, um, and then buildings were being set on, uh, on fire for insurance money. So people were out on the streets. Um, so that was kind of the context and, you know, poor public school schooling. And then I got the opportunity to go through a program called Prep for Prep. It was brand new. We were the guinea pigs uh, of this program where it allowed us to get into private schools uh, that wealthier kids in Manhattan uh, could, could attend. So how, how old were you when that happened? Oh, I was about uh, 11, 12 years old. So, yeah, I tested in fifth grade, and it was practically brand new. It had been around a couple of years. And so that was the opportunity that I took at that time to uh, get a different education and look at other opportunities. Um, so fast forward, went through a prep school, went through an Ivy League kind of school. And uh, then uh, after college, I, uh, you know, was exploring what I wanted to do. I was an international studies major, but I was finding that in the kinds of the kind of work that I was doing, I was very much into people's empowerment. I did that when I was a teenager. There was a lot of work that was being done in, in the Bronx in the eighties of, you know, gardens, vegetable gardens. And, you know, it's like the Bronx is a, was farmland before it became a concrete jungle. And so then we were suddenly using that rich uh, soil to grow things and to create townhouses and that sort of thing. So I was big into that in, uh, in college, but what I found is a lot of the people who were involved with that work, at least that was my impression at the mm-hmm. time that moved me, it said, you know, they also need to do some kind of inner work. Um, there was a way in which there was, I've, sometimes I was associating people who were really kind of propelled by a lot of anger and sort of uh, about uh, what was happening, which was understandable. But, uh, but then sometimes the actions, uh, you know, just didn't line up with what I thought was, uh, you know, you know, with a certain kind of integrity. So, um, somewhere around that time when I was about 23, I had, uh, some spiritual experiences and this is how many of us get into integral, uh, yep. so we'll get into that, <laughs> but spiritual experiences that, that sort of shifted my focus more toward the subjective so more toward the inner life, more toward, wow, if I change myself, then that changes my reality. And then when I approach things from this new reality, that impact can also reverberate outside of myself. 
Um, and so, and then I'm also, you know, in a way, uh, the, the cause of much of my own suffering, but I'm not aware of it. I'm not conscious of it. Yeah. Um, so that sort of really, uh, that year really hit me, uh, well, a little bit before that as well. But uh, and what's funny is that I didn't really have good experience. I, I went to see a therapist once on my college campus. And so I, when I was in college, I didn't want to have anything to do with psychology because I was feeling uh, depressed over some issues. And I came into the office and I started talking about the issues and it was a much older woman. And I was talking and I remember having my eyes closed and I was feeling the stuff that was coming up as our first session. And I opened my eyes and the woman was nodding off. She was asleep. So I went, wow. I'm like, (laughs) am I that boring? Uh, (laughs) That's that's a horrible first experience. So I was by the door and I slowly snuck out and walked out the door and she was fast asleep. Like she was totally Uh. out. So I I think there was some effort to contact me after, but I was never going to see a therapist again. So it is a really, you know, there were a lot of shifts that occurred for me to come to a place where gee, I want to be a therapist <laughs> because my experience of that was, you know, that or, oh, that's right. There was a, they had cognitive behavioral self-esteem groups. I remember that. And it was just the most boring, dry thing that you could possibly imagine. And they're giving out handouts and I'm looking at this thing. I'm going, oh no, this is not what I'm into. So uh, when I have the spiritual experiences, uh, part of what, occurred at that time is that I discovered what it's called transpersonal psychology. Yeah. There was a book called uh, paths beyond ego, which came in its new edition right around that time, around 93. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I went, wow, say, I had no idea that psychology also could deal with the spiritual in this much more direct. Um, yeah. So it was my discovery at the time reading, uh, Charles Tart reading, um, you know, so many, uh, you know, kind of famous um, Stanislav Grof, uh, many writers at the time. And that's when I came upon Ken Wilber for the very first time. Yeah. Uh, it was just little, you know, little pieces of Ken Wilber's work. And it also was the same period of time where I discovered a, te- a spiritual teacher named Sri Aurobindo, which some, some people here might have heard of. He's an yeah. Indian um, freedom fighter turned yogi and poet in, in the 20th century. Um, and I know that some people know that Ken Wilber got a lot of inspiration from Sri Aurobindo. That's right. Um, so uh, that just kind of opened up my horizons. And uh, I looked into, uh, you know, it, it happened very rapidly. I said, okay, now I know what I need to do. But then I was trying to look for the right place for me to go. It's like, I need to go to graduate school and, uh, and I saw CIIS, but then I started to investigate it, uh, California Institute of Integral mm-hmm. Studies, for those that don't know, in San Francisco. Good school. And, um, and it was a, it's a cool place, but it was 1993, and there was a lot of, it was small, and there were a lot of things going on at the time. It was a little unstable, and I wasn't about to move out to California from New York. So, so I went to Fordham University, uh, which was a, a Jesuit, Catholic Jesuit school, which you think, yeah, that's not a transpersonal place, but actually with American uh, Catholics there, they were actually quite open-minded. And I was able to talk about 
spirituality in that context in a counseling program, which, which I couldn't really do in say Columbia, you know, these are the schools available, Columbia or NYU, you know, much more kind of, uh, to the sort of the materialist um, paradigm mm-hmm. that, you know, they we don't talk about spirituality. Um, Fordham was talking about multiculturalism and so when you deal with culture, you're also dealing with spirituality. And so that allowed some uh, freedom for me to explore that for uh, my counseling psych degree. And I continued at Iona College for uh, a specialty in, in uh, family counseling and then I went on, I, I, I was just gone on a roll of education. So, <laughs> so you, you see that I just kind of went on and on, went to the Ackerman Institute, went to, um, what, learned about Buddhist psychology also with Dr. Joe Luiso. Um, you know, it's a lot of mind body work. And, uh, before I ever got to a doctoral program in San Francisco, uh, in East West psychology. So I was coming up with all this background. I went to, uh, Sophia uh, University, which was the uh, ITP uh, That's right. at that time. Um, so I just went, I was on a, a real mission to sort of connect with transpersonal psychology as I saw it, because Ken hadn't even really identified it as integral psychology yet. It no, was no, that was, that was pretty, pretty integral. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of coming in. Yeah, he, he wrote it was SES 1997 or something like that. Yep. So that was the big book, the bombshell that kind of hit at that time. And I had friends at the time that were into him and were like, wow, oh my God, Aquil. You know, it's like it was really a sort of a explosion. And uh, I, re- I remember that book exploding me, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. When so, you say SES for the uninformed, that's sex, ecology, and spirituality. That's the... Uh, correct. Okay, you know. yes. I'm not sure what our, our audience might already be well-versed in all that, but uh, I'll break it down a little more just in case. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, that just opened things up. And, and the thing is that I got into recovery work. It was almost by accident. I wasn't trying to go, yeah, I'm going to go into, you know, Drug and alcohol counseling, that's my thing. My thing before that was really about trauma. Mm-hmm. So my first job was really working with veterans and dealing with PTSD and using, you know, I was using at that time uh, neural and, bi- and autonomic biofeedback. So in other words, plugging you in to see how you can change your body and your reactions and your brainwaves uh, through uh, meditation and other techniques. And so I was making, uh, member cassette tapes. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Back then, so there might be some people who are like, Whoa, what's that? That's a long time ago. Yeah. Well, cassette tapes, even, I mean, we started to burn CDs eventually, but, uh, but I remember the first ones were just cassette tapes and they were just, uh, just John Cabot's in sort of 61 points kind of meditations. Uh, you know, we, so, Oh, right there, I, you know, right from the beginning, I was looking at trauma and I was looking at the biological correlates between them, that, that the psychological and the biological were not really separate things, that there was, an inter- there was a relationship between the two. And I was a little out of sync. There were people, luckily, the doctor I was into was hip to it um, because, you know, basically biofeedback, uh, you know, it went through its heyday previously in the late seventies and early eighties. 
And so they weren't really, people weren't into biofeedback in the, the mid nineties. They were kind of not, you know, um, but the technology was improving and suddenly you could do more with say yep. brain waves uh, then. And so um, we're starting to get into that and work. Charles, and I remember talking to you about this stuff when I was just starting to use binaural uh, meditation technology. And this was before I awake or any of that. And, and, you know, you were like, wow, one of the, the first people I met who was, you know, working with addicts and everything that, that actually and had a spiritual practice that was kind of experienced the same thing I had. And I remember it being a real, okay, I'm not nuts. You know, here's a very <laughs> bright sane guy who seems to be confirming what I'm finding. Oh yeah. I was so excited. So I had that background, right. And then I, I, I got into other things. I learned ear acupuncture, you know, in um, Lincoln hospital uh, in the South Bronx, there's a doctor there that had a program since 1979 was training people and were certified in New York state. And now you're in the Bay area, San Francisco Bay area at this point, you had moved there. I m moved in uh, uh, 2002. So right before then I was doing a lot of stuff. I was doing the ear acupuncture. I was doing, and then, I decided to come out here really for the doctorate and I knew that the Bay area, everything I was doing was going to be 10 times more than yeah. what I'm doing in Manhattan or the Bronx. But uh, I, it was good. Um, I feel like I got, uh, you know, I, I was like molded in New York to think very critically. Um, so it's like experimentation. Yes. Check out lots of cool stuff. Yeah, man. You know, and like have your head on straight, you know, really sort of evaluate what you're going on, have mm -hmm. different hats, go in different perspectives. This is before I thought anything about Ken Wilber and awkward with, you know, because and when that came out, it's just like, Oh, it's putting what I've been thinking a long time and sort of doing That's right. in recovery. You know, they had been talking about biopsychosocial, spiritual uh, intakes and assessments and, you know, that was already boilerplate at, at that point. Um, uh, but, and I was working with Arnold Lazarus's multimodal therapy. So there was like, there were, it was kind of there in therapy land. Um, but we can sort of put it in another, like more coherent framework and developed it a lot further. Um, so that it's a, it, you know, it's a map, it's a tool. And what I say with maps and tools and what I tell my students at Cal State or what I taught at, at JFKU, John Kennedy University, was, hey, these maps are as good as they can free you, as, as much as they can emancipate you from lockdown ways of thinking. Yep. That, that, is the, that is the main. So if there is a, a device, a map, a psychological way where you can, it opens you up and helps you see connections it helps you get insights. It helps you to grow. Then that's the, and anything that is a map that where it clinches you, where you get stuck because, oh, well, the map says X, Y, and Z, right. then that's a limitation. Of it. Right. So there's lots of maps out there, lots of different ways we can approach that. Right. The, the, the map has to reflect the territory. The territory doesn't need to reflect the map. Right. You know? so. <laughs> right, right. So it's like, hey, don't get caught. Don't get caught. If you want to learn about Ken's work, you know, there could be, you know, people having disagreements and fighting and all that. It's like, hey, you don't have to get involved in any of that. Just use, take the stuff that you, you, you know, that's useful to you and that opens you up. And it's like, yep. wow, okay. And so, you know, one of the ways that uh, Aquil and uh, Spiral Dynamics and everything that's when we talk about Integral and Ken Wilber, 
you know, it opens our, our reality toward um, this thing called recovery. Um, so I'm sure, John, you've seen in like, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's literature out there. There's a lot of YouTube videos and things. And where, you know, this whole idea of, you know, true but partial really comes up yep. in recovery. Yeah. You've got a lot of people that will just, you know, take one bit of truth and make it the whole thing. That's it. And that is like, that's a commonplace thing. And where I think integral really assists us yes. in not getting snapped, not getting locked into a certain view. So I'll give an example. Like some people, some of you viewers might have seen the videos about um, that, uh, uh, that uh, addiction is not what you think it is. And, you know, uh, you know, so this whole thing about the, the biological model is nonsense. It's all about social. It's all right, about right, 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 right. Reduce everything to the lower left, and we got it nailed. Everything is in the lower left. So they talk about the rats and the rat land, and they, you know, they gave them the, the sweet sugary thing. And it's like, oh, when they when they had a beautiful cage with lots of stuff in it, and suddenly, oh, nobody gets addicted, right? You know, and it's once again. So we need to build cages with sugary things and put people <laughs> yeah. in there. And they'll get <laughs> you know, that's proof, right? Rats are some people. Um, I feel better. <laughs> I feel a lot better. Right. So, and the thing is, oh, so what's the solution? We got to make everything in society better. And yeah. About the bio. No, it's like, these are different parts of dimensions of. Exactly. Office. Yeah. I mean, so, it's definitely a valuable model, but it's not the whole story. Yeah. No, no. And, and I read, I read a, a great paper by Neil Marxist who's talking about, especially about tribal people and how the dispossession, you know, is the cause of addiction. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of truth there, but it's also, you know, it's a lot of other things. And so you can make very cogent, good sounding arguments to reduce everything to this one thing. But those of us who've been in the trenches for a while and not dealing with ourselves and, and working with others realize you've got to have you got to cover all the essential bases. And also, for example, I think a lot of people, when they start a new school or treatment center, say, I'm a, this type of personality. I'm a six. I project my sickness, sickness, <laughs> not sickness, maybe that, on everybody. Or I'm a seven. And we just got to have fun until we stop wanting to do drugs or whatever. It is. And then realize, you know, there's a lot of diversity there. And then you have to really look in and deal with individual, you know, cultural, ethnic, you know, all the different lines, different multiple intelligences, where people are at morally, what level developmentally. I mean, there's so much that, that's included. And in, in the integral back, this is such a, which uh, saves us years of fumbling around in the dark. You know, it helps us to get to what really needs to be handled and, and dealt with much more quickly. Right. Uh, it gets us, yeah, it, it, it can be really liberating. When you take it that way, it really is something that, um, I'll give another example. I was just at the statewide, California statewide uh, substance use disorder conference. So they do this every year. And there was one guy who was presenting and saying that, um, hey, substance use disorder, you know, how many of you believe that it's all caused by trauma? And then some people raised my hand and I did not. And he says, well, I'm here to convince you that all of you that it is all because of trauma. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's what we do. We do yeah. the reduction. We do that. It's like, it's one thing, one bullet, it's nurture, it's trauma. It's, you know, um, you know, it, it, it's there and, or an approach. There's one approach. It's 12 step only. 
you know, or or twelve step is terrible, you know. Yeah, right, right, right. The, both both sides <laughs> of it. Or you know, in the spiritual field, we used to, you know, the the myth was if we just get in touch with our true nature and become enlightened, all our problems will be, all our ego stuff will be taken care of. Everything is strong, you know, I mean, decades and decades of, you know, hitting walls and falling our faces and cults and corrupt ashrams and teachers that showed us, no, there's a lot more. That's an essential part, but it's only a part, you know, we, yeah, you've got to have that, but then you've got to do the ego work, you do the trauma work, you got to do the positive work, find your calling, express yourself, build character. I mean, ah, have a healthy body. All of that stuff is just, uh, it has to be brought together. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You had you had uh, experienced enough diversity of education and learned enough different modalities before you even discovered the Aquamap that you were able to say yes and, yes and, yes and, instead of just looking at one reductionistic cause. That's right. That's right. And, and I had the feeling, I'm sure John might have felt, you know, that um, when that first came out and then what happens is like a lot of the transpersonal psychologists started chewing on it, right? So mostly in California and all that. And I was working in New York in a different context. And so already the variety was there for me because, you know, a lot of the psychologists and people who are working on it in California were not working with the clients I was working They weren't having the reality. They weren't having the diversity. They weren't working with that socioeconomic class, those cultures and all that. So they were making pretty large statements (laughs) about therapy but I said, wait a minute, this doesn't really apply here. We need to have more voices. And eventually, you know, we started seeing with the Integral Institute, and then we started seeing with, um, you know, many other uh, that took it up and said, you know what, we, that, you know, in Canada, let it go. It was kind of like, okay, we need to do research on this, and this needs to go on a wide scale. It needs to go in other countries. It needs, other people need to work with it, chew on it. You know, it can't just be in the level of theory and imagination. It, we have to actually apply this stuff Absolutely. to see what really works with people. And, uh, and that's where I felt like, okay, I'm included in this, and I can actually fill in a lot of things that just other people wouldn't know because they don't deal with that. And they're not dealing in with recovery and co-occurring disorders and, and uh, certain populations. So, um, so that was, uh, I think at that time, that was part of my role. That's part of why I published some things at the time was really to say, hey, you know, there are some other uh, perspectives that need to be included in this, uh, you know, and I know a lot of people are making careers on, you know, um, creating like, here, integral psychotherapy or whatever, but, you know, if there's something that needs, you know, this is something that's a collective project. Absolutely. It really requires many voices, and there's going to be a lot of variety in something as huge as integral. You know, we look at the models and stuff, but we're going to focus on different things just basically because that's who we are when, and that's good. It's good to have the variety, you know? So, so, so Charles, um, you, obviously you're smarter than the average bear. I mean, you've got, you've got this wonderful encyclopedic mind that can take and integrate, but, but what are you kind of learning? What are you seeing from, you know, you also work on the front lines, you know, you're not a mere theoretician. You're a guy that's right in the middle of it on a middle of it on a daily basis. So what are you finding about this kind of integral approach in your work? And, you know, a lot of it, again, one of the, the, the essential insights of integral is you speak to people on the level that they're at. And you language things that, you know, you don't go into a, a fundamentalist church and talk about, 
you know, the science behind all this stuff. Uh, that's not how they form their view of reality. You have to talk in terms of faith and prayer and scripture and all that. It's all great stuff, right? But it's, it's, it's where they're at. So what are you finding uh, in, in your, you know, your, your, your work from the field, from the trenches? What's going on now? Wow. So there's so much going on. <laughs> that, that's one thing. Uh, we're in California where they just legalize cannabis. Um, so that's like, that's huge. Um, there's the opioid epidemic, but we really in California are in a meth amphetamines epidemic, which doesn't really seem to abate. And in fact, pretty much eclipses the, you know, uh, opioid, uh, even though that's there. Um, and there are a lot of trends in, in the state regarding, um, you know, payments and Obamacare and lots of shifts and changes. And we have a huge immigrant population that can be very much impacted by a lot of the policies at the federal level. Um, so there's, there's lots of, we're dealing with a melting mix of things. But, um, but dealing with therapy, um, over the years, I've had many different kinds of experiences in translating or working with the idea of integral uh, with different kinds of groups. Um, so for many years, I worked with young people uh, that were in a, it's, there's a city called Richmond in uh, California. And for those that don't know, it's kind of like, it's smaller than Oakland, but you know, it was known to be one of the most dangerous cities in the United States. Um, in fact, some people seem to take pride in that uh, when I was working with them. Is that Charles, is that drug-wise, gang-wise, violence? Yeah. Murders. So, Murders. Uh, so I was working with collaborative courts, drug courts, that sort of thing, and working with youth. And one of the things that I was doing, I was using a curriculum called ART, Aggression Replacement Therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're working with substance use, but also trying to shift their, uh, you know, trying to create, they, the term was pro-social, Right. So as opposed to antisocial. That's the term they use in that curriculum. So I got trained in that, and I said, you know what? This needs a lot more meat. Like, I know that, yes, I can, like, hold to the model and do that and be, you know, have high fidelity. They would have loved that I did that, but there was so much missing from it that I started to add and enhance it. And so one of my favorite, one of the groups they ran was called, actually, uh, Moral Development. There was a group that was actually, you know, as you got through the curriculum, there was this whole thing where basically it was a breakdown of Kohlberg's levels of moral development, but done in simplistic language. So, you know, might makes right. That's the lowest, mm -hmm. you know, punch someone in the face and you take their stuff. You know, that's the lowest level. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Right. So that's yep. the exchange thing. And then there's the other level, which is like the golden rule. Do unto others as you have do unto you. So there are these phrases that sort of are supposed to help capture, even for you, that uh, particular thing. And then we are the world was the last phrase, which was sounds like Michael Jackson's song, but really it was about looking at something larger than just yourself. Yeah. And so I riffed the heck out of that. I mean, I pulled so much out of it. And here are these kids that are, gang or gang affiliated and they are learning levels of development they're learning all about the different they're learning about eq and iq and moral development and 
spiritual awesome. development and all that stuff. And we're working on how to apply that. How do we acknowledge and recognize the differences between them in themselves? And so, you know, and we focused a lot on emotional development because that was really what we're, you know, I think is the, the that's the hot topic when we're dealing with recovery. Um, because we have, it's true. There is the guy, it, not everything is about trauma, but there's a lot of trauma. Absolutely. <laughs> there is a lot you of trauma. Bet especially with these kids. And so when you have arrested development and it goes for generations and that is something that we need to really focus on. Um, I say, you know, in a way I used to, you know, we used to simplify it. Say, you know, EQ, emotional intelligence is almost more important than IQ, you know, really as far as what happens in your life. Successful. Yeah. Successful life. You know, and, you know, that that's interesting. I haven't used this model, but I think I heard from Ken years ago. And he talked about, say you're born with a hundred bucks in the bank. Okay. And each level, you know, you go from, you know, from infanthood to, you know, childhood, it takes, you know, $25 and this and that. Anyway, things start happening. You know, to get beat up by your brother, you get, you know, people bully you at school. And that takes away from the, you know, from, from that, that emotional bank account with your hundred bucks. By the time you get to your 18 years old and you're trying to make it to adulthood, well, it costs about, you know, 83 bucks, about the minimum price to get to adulthood. And you only have like 56 left in the bank. You know, you're just not going to get there. And so somehow you have to recover those lost funds so you can make that, you know, that next leap into adulthood. And that's, I think it's a really beautiful model why that work is so important. I love that analogy. And what I've really, in a lot of my work in the past few years has been working with like things like family constellations and our familial inheritances. And sometimes you have families that are already in deficit in the bank account. They owe the credit card. Yeah. You're not even coming in with a hundred. You're coming with, with, with a deficit and baggage from previous generations, whether they're incarcerated, they were drug dealers, all that stuff. So, it's like just to get to zero is an effort to move from, you know, that deficit, that deficit to zero is a huge step. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's part of the work I do. So, you know, with youth, you work certain ways, right. It's a very different approach, but you know, you have, uh, when you really kind of hit on that emotional development, you get a lot of, 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 of leverage, you really are able to sort of like move ahead when they start to grow up, they're not using the cannabis. They're not using the stuff. And I'm like, Hey, you know what? The cannabis, we already know in the research that takes away 10 points of your IQ. You know what 10 points of your IQ is, you know, when they start to realize that or, uh, Oh, I'm not a crack addict. I don't, I'm not a drug user. When did you start using when they, they start using when they're seven and they're 17. Oh, you've been using drugs since you for 10 years. That's a long time for somebody who's 17. It hits them. They're like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I was, I've been using for 10 years, you know, and all that cannabis has been impacting your brain. All those other drugs have been impacting you. And so they, when they finally are clear of that and they're in early recovery, and what I call early recovery is really the first six or seven months. You know, you have your stages where you're in withdrawal, the first withdrawal, then there's the honeymoon period where, right. and you're the awesome counselor, therapist, you know, you're, I feel great. I'm cured. Right. And no, you're not cured, but you feel pretty good because you're not uh, in withdrawal. 
Mm-hmm. And then you <laughs> then you hit the your the wall. <laughs> and the wall is the Christopher R bill for our business is really like, okay, now you've actually managed to go for a couple of months and all those all that emotional stuff is now coming up. It's coming up. All that trauma, all the other stuff, the psychiatric stuff that was not diagnosed or was you were treating with the drugs. You're covering it up with the drugs or the behaviors, which could have been sex addiction, gambling, you know, any number of, of addicted behaviors. Could be internet, could be a lot of stuff. But then that's covering that up. And then suddenly you've stopped the behavior and then you're dealing with the underlying depression, the underlying anxiety, the underlying. Yeah, trauma. and you no longer have the drugs to numb that out and to avoid that. And there it just starts coming up. It's like, oh my Lord. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so there, uh, you know, what I say to, you know, the people I train, I said, that's a good time. If you're just a credentialed substance use disorder counselor, that's a good time to refer out for therapy. Those are, that's an opportunity. It's like now for the first time, they're starting to feel their, their, their stuff. And we get to an opportunity to, to really work with uh, the, un- some of the underlying root causes that, you know, preceded the drug use. Um, you know, some people are, you know, it, it's, they, they use drugs later in life. They, you can't generalize for everybody. Um, some people have more severe psychiatric issues that they're treating yeah. with powerful drugs. And some it's, you know, sometimes it's trauma. Sometimes it's not as severe. So the proper integral evaluation is really important. And we're always assessing and evaluating as we work with clients. Uh, I, I, you're such a resource, Charles, but I have a, a question changing this a little bit, you know, but okay. I started, I started actually before I went to grad school, I was working with, in the woods with, with kids and drugs were always a big part of it. Then I worked at uh, Thunder Road in Oakland. I'm sure you, yes. yeah, and I really admired that place that everybody was so motivated and they were, and I, I love the kids we were working with. It's an adolescent program, downtown Oakland. And, um, but what I know, I started noticing from the beginning, we worked so hard and we cared so much that we just get fried and burn out. So much pain, so much dysfunction, so much tragedy, all of this stuff. And you're right in the middle of it. And obviously, you're one of the most vital, you know, just present people that I know right in the middle. How do you take care of yourself? Uh, that's, that's, that's great. So thanks for um, that, you know. Um, so one of my biggest things I used to you know, even teach about it was about counselor burnout. Um, in this field, uh, there is such a huge burnout rate, um, you know, and it's true in mental health to a degree, but when you've invested and you've gotten a license in mental health, you try not to like leave the field. <laughs> you, you're going to pay your grad school, uh, loans, but you know, with an SED counselor who's done less, um, there are a lot of things that I've, you know, you and I have all seen, you know, we've seen the, the counselors who are in recovery that relapse. Yeah. No. So they've, they've had a few years or they, you know, and then, you know, dealing with these clients, they, you know, they over identify, they, they make they, they have boundary. Uh, they make the mistakes about boundary and they don't do that self care. And the, you know, what I tell my, you know, uh, people I work with, I say the, your, your recovery is not a, 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 it's not like, like we used to say enlightenment, right? Recovery is not like I'm recovered and that's done, right? <laughs> it's not like, a, you know, hey, I've stopped using drugs and now I don't have to do anything anymore, right? It's sort of like, no, it's this ongoing developmental process. Yep. And 
you, you can only assist your clients as far as you are assisting yourself. That's right. That's right. You know, it's like that, that old, uh, Oh, and by the way, if you are a counselor and you're just all stressed and burnt out and everything, you get this young client that goes, Oh, your recovery. I'd rather be on drugs and look like you do. You know, so <laughs> there has to be, you know, it's like, I love, I love the people. And I, I think you're one of these type of people. They can look at it. And say, well, if that's man, if Charles is, you know, if that's what a healthy, I want some of that. You know, how did you do that, Charles? You know, and, and you ha- you have to show something better. If you just down there with them, it, you, first of all, you just burn out. And I'd been there, you know, that where I, it took me a long time to learn about integral practice and how to take care of myself. But you start finding you dread going to work. You can't hear another problem. You can't hear another. It's like, oh, God, how did I get to this thing? And, you know, and I was a political activist. I was a singer-songwriter protesting, you know, always out on the, you know, trying to, to write the, the, the ills of the world, which there are a few. And I, I found me and my copy just fry. Then you get depressed and cynical. I mean, you know, or, you know, use or whatever the, the problem may be. So, yeah. yeah. So how do you do it, Charles? How I do it. So yeah, going, coming back to that. Um, and this, this addresses what I said earlier is really about, Hey, I'm with these activists and they're like burnt out and they're angry and they're just like fried. And, and I came across a lot of other counselors uh, who had that, I spend a lot of time doing, to me, self-care. It's like, if you're, if you're doing this kind of work, you have to be not, you have to go deep in the well of wellness in order to do this work at all. Like you can't be sort of on the surface. Hey, you're just doing your thing, watch, vegging out, watching TV and kind of not because everything that isn't that kind of deeper work um, or enjoyment, pleasure, uh, other kinds of processes that give you joy uh, is, you know, potentially harmful. If you're bombarded with everything that's going on in the news, and then you go to work with that, you're going to have a hard time being resourceful when the client is in a trauma state and trying expecting you to assist them, or you know, or you're dealing with one more so-called, you know, you you get in the mindset, oh, another manipulative addict or whatever it is. And right, right. Now you're on like attack mode instead of being, being really helpful. Yeah. So, absolutely. so I do, you know, so getting to what I do, um, I spend a lot of time, of course, meditation. <laughs> that's a, you know, that's a baseline kind of thing that I've been doing for many years. Um, basically I practice what I preach because what I do, if I do sessions with clients and I promote, um, Hey, you want to help with your, your meditation during binaural using binaural technologies uh, if you want to use ABS glasses, whatever it is that gets you to do it, that gets your butt in the cushion and gets you to sit with yourself, um, that's what I promote. And I, because I do it, because I've right. been through it, I understand the, the process. I know the kinds of releases that occur when you do that kind of work. I've, you know, I've, I've had enough experience in that. So I'm not just the therapist that says meditation's nice go do it i heard it's good yeah it's for you it's for you addicts you know right right here do some yoga i heard there's a yoga class or whatever right 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 i like that it's like it comes from a very personal place and something i use on a regular basis and i can show the, the ins and outs of using technology for example in the aid of in the for the the purpose of recovery where does that fit in you know um it you know it has to do with grounding it has to do with really sort of 
learning to live not on the surface of things, but more deeper, deep within. So you can get to some of those root causes, those issues that sort of come up. And so Charles, you can, do, you, do you yeah. find that because this technology allows, you know, people the first time, you know, you're in a deep meditative state, if you sit there for three or four minutes, do you find it helps people stick with the meditation practice uh, because they begin to feel the power of the practice almost right off the bat than That's, if they were doing more traditional meditation? I, I would say so. I, yeah. It certainly was true with me when I first met you and you, we were at the uh, integral uh, theory conference and you, I put on those headphones at the time and I went, oh, I could totally go with this. This is gonna, like, I can see myself doing this every yeah. day because it's already, you know, and you think of people who are, you know, they, they go for these powerful drugs because it's like, it's right there, man. It's mm-hmm. like, boom, you feel something. That's right, right. At least initially. <laughs> Not long term, then you're just trying to catch up. But at least at first, it's powerful. And sometimes the psychotropic meds, they take weeks to sort of kick in. So here you get something that's like, wow, all right, right in the first four minutes, you're already lowering your heart rate. You're already like, you know, getting more relaxed, like stuff that you were not able to do yourself because of your monkey mind. You're suddenly like able to drop in. You're like, wow, man, that's cool, you know, and not fall asleep because that's one of the biggest things. But earlier in my career, I tried to get them to do a meditation tape. Oh my God. I, I tried to med- I wasn't a very good meditator myself, but I tried to get my, my beloved addict to meditate and everybody, to, you know, if we could sit there for 10 minutes without, then bloom, bloom. Oh, it was, it was just a disaster. <laughs> and then, you know, up here in our, my home here for years, I filled it full of addicts, you know, mm-hmm. every, every bed, spare bed. And we have a meditation room uh, upstairs and people, I mean, people would come in. God. Uh, finally, I started to figure, oh, yeah, well, you probably need to be physically detoxed before you come in. And I was doing that myself sometimes. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't wish that on Hitler. I mean, coming off of all these drugs, it's just the stuff I've witnessed. And being right. an empath, it's, it was just, just sitting into hell going through this stuff. But the, they'd be, <laughs> we, we'd start as a group, and like the first you know, week or two, people, everybody's like, <laughs> stretched out on the pillows and everything. After about two weeks, all these people were a good posture. They're sitting on the cushions and you could tell the practice is becoming theirs. They're beginning to own it. And we found that there was so much like anger at religion. You know, a lot of people have been you know, oppressed, abused by whatever. And, you know, very quickly in the first week or so, they go, okay, yeah, there's spirituality, religion, something else. It's related but this is mine. I mean, this is something, you know, deeply personal and just to watch that happen so quickly. is so, so bloody beautiful. You know? Yeah. And at the time with what you're saying about the spiritual, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of people who are told, uh, you know, go to NA or go to AA and you know, they're not clicking with that. Right. And it's like, it's, it a and a has saved so many lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, totally uh, for that. But as a professional, one thing I explain to my clients is that, number one, that's not treatment. That's peer and social support, which is absolutely needed. Right. And there is a, a path there with the, with the steps. And you need to take what you can from it and throw away that does, what doesn't work with you. You know, um, that's, you know, it's a part of it. But one of the challenges, and then, you know, I refer them also to life ring and smart recovery and other kinds of of, of supportive. That's they, right. They're not into that. If it's really too much stigma, you know, doing the, if doing the, the serenity prayer is just too much, then okay, well maybe we need to try something else. But for a lot of folks, they get, suddenly they get mileage with the 12 step and the higher power 
when they put on the darn headphones because they're like, whoa, I'm having a direct experience, which is what I, what they're talking about there. It's That's not right. like some concept that is somebody tells me of a higher power, which could be a, a light bulb or a doorknob or, or like, I don't know what it is. I'm having this peaceful uh, experience and there's a way that I can have a direct relationship to this, that I can start to under, feel some of the contours of this. And so I know I've had clients who have just come with higher power, no way, that's not my thing, but oh, but I get something here. And there's something spiritual in this, or at least what I identify as spiritual. I'm not loading their language with it, but they'll come with me and they'll say that. I'm like, huh, that's really interesting. That's a well, you know, and, and because AA started out with Bill W.'s mystical experience when he was in the hospital where they sent him to die, basically. And boom, that big explosion of, of experience of God or whatever happened in that, that initial phase of his recovery was the basis for all of AA. And then, of course, and then at one point in later in the period, he experimented with LSD when it was legal and said, well, everybody should do acid. And they were going, no, not so much, Bill. So they kind of lost, in many ways, they lost the, the kind of the, the, the roots or the foundation of spiritual transformative experience because they didn't really have a way to get there. And step 11, I mean, I was never taught how to meditate at AA meetings and stuff. And maybe if you had some, you know, some recovering, you know, Zen master or something, and you got him as a sponsor, you'd get it. But most people didn't. And so, uh, right. And taking drugs is probably not the optimal way for addicts to experience God. Uh, there's some issues there. So, but now that we have, you know, these new technologies where people can actually, you know, step 11 become a vital part, you know, through prayer and meditation and, you know, and AA, I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, you get up in the morning, you know, Lord, help me to stay sober today. Thank you so much. And then you go to bed. God, thank you for keeping me sober today, which is brilliant. You know, I love, you know, it's beautiful to pray like that. But that's not interior transformative uh, contemplative practice where you really begin to discover higher power, not as just an idea, a doorknob, a beer bottle, whatever, but as a vital living presence that is helping you, you know, light up and helping you face the stuff that you need to face and do the work that you need to do, an essential source of, of uh, interior power. And I think that, you know, with the work that you've been doing and, you know, developing I Awake and these tools, we still haven't broken into uh, uh, the recovery world at large. And that's one of uh, the tasks that we're in, you know, just add the deep transformative meditation as a part of your, you know, your recovery process and treatment centers and stuff and give people a tool they can take with them for the rest of their lives, just for the interior stuff, just for the and, you know, of course, the brain, the physical brain is is getting better and your neurochemicals are rebuilding, you know, the ones that were exhausted by the use of drugs. And I mean, you're getting more intelligent. All sorts of good things are happening. But give them at least give them that. And then we'll start working on some of the other stuff. But it's it's a huge uh, it's a huge advance in the whole field that we really haven't, uh, you know, it just hasn't got out there starting to in little places They're, they are beginning to do it. But it's maybe in you know, three or four percent, and it needs to be like 97 percent or 100 percent. Yeah, it's it's you know, I think a, a, a good uh, core or a predecessor to look at is really the idea of you know, of acupuncture, which was used in, in certain places, like I was trained in it, right? And a lot of people were getting trained in it, but uh, a lot of times alternative practices don't get the, the traction they should or could get in community centers and because of funding, because of where the uh, workforce is, frankly, 
they're not all doing that. Many of them are, hey, I got six months clean and, you know, they're getting a job because the pay is so low. Um, where you do see those kinds of things are in the fancier rehab centers that, you know, maybe the Britney Spears of the world and all that. They get all kinds of, they get yoga and massage and acupuncture and they probably could get ioic and all that stuff but it's not necessary for just be the exclusive uh fancy rehab or uh you know that that this is something that could be more widely uh disseminated and for not a lot of money for a lot of people that uh you know and and one you know what i what i what i think of is when i was getting trained at uh, lincoln hospital so it's in the south bronx and this doctor has been running this acupuncture clinic, community acupuncture, one of the first. And people would come in for free. And these are guys with tats on their faces. And, you know, they're coming in with God knows what, women with pregnant, all that. They come in, they sit down in the acupuncture chair. And then not a word is spoken. You come in with the needles, you put it in the ear, you put the bead in the ear, whatever. And they sit there for 20 minutes. They sit there for an hour whatever it is, and then they leave, they go on outside in their lives in the crazy world that there is in the South Bronx, um, you know, which can be kind of crazy in my experience. And, uh, and I asked one guy, and this guy had like, you know, he's all the tattoos and the, you know, uh, markings. I said, why do you come in here? And he said, this is the one place, one time in my life that I have for me where I find peace. Yeah. You know, and, and just saying that I think every clinician that has, actually has an office needs to have a meditation room where people can come in and take that thing. And, of course, it's so scalable now because almost everybody has a smartphone or some version thereof and earbuds or, head, you know, it's like that's that's the whole damn world. And this technology can be delivered that way. So it's not this, you know, you be, need a big fancy machine or a flotation tank or, you know, bells and whistles. It's, you know, and my God, you know, I'm giving away so much stuff pro bono for people that need it. You know, not about getting John Dupuy rich. It's about getting this out in the world. So, um, you know, there's, I think we're going to have to wrap this up, but there's about a million things I didn't get to talk about. And we'd love to have you back. You're such, you're such a wonderful resource, Charles. And, uh, you're just anyway, and I'm sure everybody who's, who's, who's watching this now. So let's um, let's wrap this up, and then let's yeah. talk about continuing this conversation. Yeah, thank Charles, you. I I to, yeah, just thank you so much for being here. My brain is spinning a million miles an hour with everything that was in this conversation. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question here, not to uh, put you on the spot, but you seem to think pretty quickly. So, if you could put one thing on a billboard that the whole world would see, mm. what would you say? About recovery or about sure recovery or practice or integral or education or opening your mind or anything you want. If you could give one message to the world on a billboard. Um, hmm. Something like, well, this is what comes up. You know, I probably would come up with a better answer if I had more time. Uh, follow your soul. Follow your soul. Follow your soul. Mm-hmm. That deepest yeah. part of you. Yes. Follow and that's that. the part that gets lost in addiction. And what are we recovering? Well, one of the things we're recovering, or maybe for some people discovering, is the soul, that deepest yeah. part of you that knows. And that's where the individual human connects with the divine. And that's really where the purpose yeah. and, and, and the, the, the what is it all aboutness of life is right. discovered, you know. And, that, and that's, if anything, just as we wrap up, you know, the thing that when I look at a client, and I see somebody who's coming in who's used drugs, there's that light 
that, you know, we can talk about science and brain and all that stuff, but the light is not there. It's dimmed. There's a sense of a lack of purpose, lack of direction. And what I try to look for is how to light that up. What's the thing that actually awakens that? And it was the, you know, the drugs temporarily to get some sort of feeling, but to really sort of come to that, that sense of, oh, there's something for me. There's something that I can contribute. There's something, there are goals and things that I want, and it gets me excited. And you start to feel that sense of, of purpose. And you feel that sense of hope. That hope. Yeah. Yeah. And I say, well, if you're a counselor, if you're out there and doing that, if you're not instilling hope, get another, get into another business. We'll, we'll get some so you can share it, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's on the positive side, right? So, but, but, de- but definitely. And I, and I look at it's, it's uh, you know, there's a part of me that really, you know, thinks if I were born a uh, hundred years ago, I would have been some sort of priest or, you know, and I, I would be doing some sort of pastoral work. And, but really in recovery, it's, it's really addressing that, that part, that, that, that awakening inside. And, and it's not like that, you know, if you're looking from recovery is recovering your life. It's recovering right. life, finding that thing that you are here to do and being able to live and live in that, but not just as a potential, but as a reality. And that's what excites me about doing this work. And I always get getting back to like, how do I take care of myself? Well, when I see the renewal in my clients, that goes a long way in keeping me going and uh, doing more, doing more work in this. All right. Thank you so much, Charles. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit IntegralRecoveryInstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.